Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. For those that don't know, my name is Dan Fitzgerald. It's awesome to be here. Um, We are in week 12 of our series in Acts, and I have been encouraged and challenged. I hope you have. I hope you had an opportunity to listen, uh, whether here in person or our live stream. So I'm going to start with a very obvious statement. Uh, So bear with me. You ready for this? We all make decisions every day. Right? Okay. I didn't lose you. So recently, I was reading an article from UNC TV, and it talked about how, according to Cornell University, their researchers, we make 226 decisions every day on food alone. The article goes on and says that the adult, the average adult makes a conscious 35,000 decisions every single day. The funny part of this article goes on and says this. It says, each decision carries certain consequences which are both either good or bad. And I thought that was pretty obvious, right? But the fact that we make up to 35,000 decisions a day carried a lot of weight. And what I love about the Bible, and in life, you see people make decisions and there's consequences. But what I love about the Bible, what we look at today in Acts, is we see people make decisions uh, that affect others. And these people are not perfect people. God chooses us, unperfect people, to share his love and the news of Jesus. So we're going to look at it today. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16. If you have it on your phone or a mobile device, if not, we're going to have the words. And what we're going to do is we're going to read from Acts chapter 16. I'm going to work through the whole passage today. We're going to read a small chunk. So if you would stand with me, what we're going to do is we'll read the Word of God. We do this as a church. And at the end, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and the church will respond with, thanks be to God. So, without further ado, verses 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought him out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And they took them the same hour of the night, and he washed the ruins, and he, was, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I pray that today you speak, that as we think about the decisions we make and the consequences of our choices uh, and how you give us grace and love and that you empower us to make these choices, that we today will choose to hear your word and that you will speak, and not me, but you, Holy Spirit. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. So as I said, uh, 
I was going to tell you that we all make decisions. I want to give you my three main points today. So the first one's pretty obvious too, is that God allows us to be decision makers. So number one, God allows us to be decision makers. Number two is making godly decisions requires a level of dependence on God. So when we make godly decisions, we, depend, we, are, we need to depend on God. So there's a level of dependence. And my third point is our dependence on God can influence those around us. Our dependence on God will influence those around us. So that's why I want to move today through this passage. So the first point is God allows us to be decision makers. I, I think I take that for granted. You know, when I was reading that, there's 35,000 choices that we make in a day or 226 on just food alone. Uh, I was like, man, I, I don't feel the weight or the gravity of me being a decision maker. So I want to share a bit of a story. So if I was to rewind to the year of 2014, mid-August... I was getting prepared. I was in Kansas City. I was preparing the referee the biggest professional soccer game of my life. It was this big game. I was going to be in ESPN, and I had the defending MLS champion, Kansas City, and they were playing the defending English Premier League champion, Manchester City. This was a huge televised game, biggest of my career. I was excited, and as I was in the hotel room preparing, I got a phone call from our friend and our real estate agent, Rachel, and she said, hey, Dan, the house that you and Becky put an offer in, they accepted. No haggle. They took your offer. You guys own a house. Congratulations. And I hung up the phone, and I was flooded with emotions. I called my wife, and I was like, this is great. Oh, man, we got to pay for it. But we have a house. Uh, there was a lot of different emotions that went through. Now, I want us to, I'm going to come back to this story throughout the message, but I want to take a quick pause and think about the decisions that we all made today. Probably most of us most likely didn't buy a house today. If you did, Congratulations. Uh, but most of it was like, what? What are we going to wear? What clothes are we going to put on? What are we going to eat? What are our kids going to eat? What time do we leave the house? Do we have coffee at home? Do we stop and get some? Do we get the great coffee for free? You made a choice to come to Oak City, praise God. You had a choice. How loud do I sing? Do I like the songs we sing? You have a choice right now. You're like, oh, it's Dan teaching how long before I tune him out. Stay with me, please. Uh, but we all have just choices that we make. And what I love is that this is God's design. He allows us to make decisions. I think about my dog. He doesn't really make decisions, like thinking. He's like, hey, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat something. Whatever it is, he'll eat it, right? If he's tired, he lays down wherever he wants. God has gifted us the ability to make decisions and realize the impact of our decisions. And I, I hear you now. You're like, hey, Dan, this is pretty obvious. So let me, let me set the scene for Acts chapter 16. So we have Paul. Paul was originally named Saul was persecuting Christians on the road to Damascus. He meets and experiences Jesus and changes his life. He becomes a missionary. All right? So then we have with him is Silas, and that is because Paul and Barnabas split, and Paul took Silas with him. And, and then in the beginning of chapter 16, we meet another person named Timothy. And the whole story of Timothy here could be a whole other sermon. All I'm going to say is that Timothy gets circumcised so he can go with Paul. You want to talk about a decision as a man to get circumcised? Again, that's a sermon for another day, but there's a lot to that, right? So in verse 5, it says that the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So what Paul, Timothy, and Silas, what they were doing was they were going to these churches. A lot of these churches were planted in homes, and they were encouraging, and they were teaching them, and their numbers were growing. So if I go back to that UNC TV article... In the article, talked about decision-making processes, and they listed out six different ways. And I just want to list them real quick, just, just to give you a little frame of reference. So the first one is impulsiveness. 
And that's really, you leverage the first option. Like, hey, that house, I want it, we buy it. So that's the first one. The second is compliance, right? You choose the most pleasing, what's comfortable, popular. You just go with the flow. The third option they talked about was delegating, where you say, I'm not going to make the decision. I'm going to let someone else that I trust, or someone else will make that decision, and I hope it works out. You go to the fourth, and you get that avoiding, avoidance, deflection. And that's where you maybe you ignore the decisions. You're like, hey, I'm not going to be responsible. I just don't, this overwhelms me, so I'm not going to address it. You get number five, which is balancing, where you weigh the factors, you, you think about uh, all the impacts, you study them, you try to make the best decision. And then the last one is prioritizing and reflecting, where you put the most energy, the effort into thoughts. You want to know what is the greatest impact. Now, listen, I know there are hundreds, if not thousands, of books on decision-making, the art of decision-making. There's TED Talks. There's so many resources that I found as I started going down that rabbit hole. And as I looked at it, I realized that we, we all use a combination of some decision-making process. But here's the spoiler, is that the first decision we make is what strategy are we going to use, right? So we go through all the, what's the best one? The first one, we, what do we choose is our first decision. And I say all that to say, um, let me ask you a question. Who here thinks they are good at making decisions? Raise your hand, quick show of hands, if you're good at making decisions. Five, six, okay. Who here wants to be better at making decisions? Who here wants the people around them to be better at making decisions? <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> put your hand up, there we go. As I thought about that, I realized that really the crux of it is we don't want to be responsible for making decisions, but it goes deeper, right? I think we, we want those decisions to better us. We don't want decisions to be made that are going to hurt us. I want the best for me. Well, is that decision the best for me? Is that better for someone else? And I think that's the crux, the weight of that. So I am going to give you this quick disclaimer. I am not going to tell you how to be better at making decisions. So if you wanted that, you can tune me out now. Um, please don't, but I'm not going to go through it. What I want to do is I want to pivot a little bit and talk about just some of the decisions we made today. As I said, most of us probably haven't bought a house, but we made decisions like what clothes to wear. And with the decisions you made today, how many of those decisions were godly decisions? Now, when I put my shirt on, I wasn't like, well, God's going to be impressed with this shirt. Uh, that, that's not a godly decision. So if I go back to that decision for us to buy a house, we spent a lot of time praying. We got married in November of 2013. So that summer of 2014, like, it's time to buy a house. I think we started in May or June. And it felt like forever. I remember Becky found this great place that was five acres. The house needed some work. Uh, her sister and brother-in-law moved in there. It was great for them. And I remember thinking, well, that's great. They have a place. We still don't have a place. Uh, God, do you want us to buy a house? Is this what you want, God? And I remember Becky saying, reminding me that we just need to trust God. And if you know Becky, and especially when we were first married, uh, we both struggle with control. We still do. You know, we both want to be in control. And I remember God just telling us to trust him, to trust him. And Becky was like, we have to trust God. She was really anchoring me in that. So, of course, God has a good sense of humor as we're trying to buy a house. Like, okay, let's see how much control you have. What really leads me to that second point, though, of making godly decisions requires a level of dependence on God. So, setting the scene here for Paul, Paul wants to go to Asia. In verse 7, it talks about the Holy Spirit is forbidden Paul and Silas and Timothy to go to Asia. And he even says in uh, verse 6 and 7, and it says in verse 7, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. 
And if you think about that on, on the surface, they want to go to Asia and preach the gospel. That seems like a great thing. But it's not what God wanted for them. And I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I'm like, this seems like the right thing and God doesn't allow it. When we were in that house buying process, I remember there's a little place in Fuquay, had a really small kitchen. I'm like, well, we can settle, this will work. But in the dining room, they had this weird thing where all the floors were leveled, but then the dining room had to step off. And then it was leveled down there. So you had to step down to get to this dining room and talk about a tripping hazard. And I was like, all right, well, we can settle, we'll make this work. And Becky's like, we need to trust God. And it was really convicting, especially because at that point, that was July. We started this process in May, still didn't have a house. And I think a lot of us can relate to that, right? Where maybe there's something in your life like, this is a good thing. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a kid. It's a promotion or a job. Like, these are good things, but God hasn't opened the door for it. And as we think about that, we get to the, the, the question of, is God good and does he really want good for us? And the really short answer is yes. God is good and he wants good for us. But often, what is good for us is not often what we understand. or We don't, know, we don't see the beginning and the end. We look at it in this one instance. And God wants us to trust him. So if we pick up in verses uh, 9 and 10 of Acts 16, it says this. So, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they are trusting God. They want to go to Asia. They want to do something good, but they're trusting God that this is where he wants them to go. So if we read verses 11 12 says this, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day the Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. So I have to play a little Bible geek here, um, a history geek, or Bible geek, whatever you want to say. So they go to Philippi. This is a leading port in the city of, in the district of Macedonia, and it's considered a Roman colony. That's a big deal. It's a big deal because a Roman colony was rare because that meant they governed them themselves. And it usually was full of Roman soldiers, so they're not always the best place to, if you're a Jew and not a Roman. The cool thing about Philippi, it was named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. So this is where God calls them. Now, I didn't know this, but John helped give me some resources to help point this. So, so there should be a map here, and if we look at this map, as, it was, as it's coming up, if they were to set sail from Troas to Samothrace, right? So there's the little arrow from Troas to Samothrace to Neapolis. The current is going against the arrow, and typically that time of the year, the wind went against them as well. But in the scripture, it says that they made a direct trip, and they were there in two days. So God shifts the wind for them to make this journey. They are trying to go to Asia. God says no, and God shifts the wind for their ship to go directly. It's pretty amazing. So things should, should be looking up. So they get, I'm going to kind of paraphrase, so they get to Philippi, and as they get there, Paul normally would look for a synagogue. He wants to look for Jews that know of God, and he can't find any. So he goes to the river where he hears that there's a place of prayer, and that's where he meets Lydia. Lydia's a successful businesswoman. The Bible says she's a seller of purple, which was a sign of royalty, so she sold stuff for royalty. And it says, 
in verse, excuse me, verse 14, that she was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And as a result, she gets baptized and her family. So Paul and Timothy and Silas, they're off to a great start. You get to Philippi, you meet Lydia, and now her and her family are baptized, and she takes them into their house. Things seem to be like, man, they're looking up. But if you know Acts, they don't stay looking up the whole time. So here, of course, there's a twist. So verse 16, it says this, And then we are going to the place of prayer. We are met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and who brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So this girl was possessed. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So free marketing. But it goes on, it says that Paul gets annoyed. For many days, Paul became greatly annoyed. And I can relate to that. If you have kids, you can probably relate to that. And it says, So now Paul turns and says to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So I can relate to Paul being frustrated. What I don't understand, I'm going to be completely honest, I don't understand why it took Paul a couple days to help this girl. I haven't been able to unpack that. But he does. She's now freed from the bondage of the Spirit. And something that jumped out to me as I was studying that I hadn't read, hadn't really jumped out before, was he said, these men are servants of the Most High God. They are servants. And if I go back to that second point, that making godly decisions requires a level of dependence. And I started thinking, man, if I viewed myself as a servant, would I depend more on God? If we viewed ourselves and said, God, we are your servants, would we depend on him more? As we think through that, I want to return back to the passage, and we'll pick it up in verse 19. So, of course, we have this twist, and here it is. So when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. They realized that their way of money and fame is now gone because that spirit has left the girl. She is worthless to them. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept their practice, which none of this is true. Not, all they did is they freed this girl from bondage. The crowd joined them in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of Paul and Silas and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received his order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Man, things have gone for the worst. If you were Paul and Silas, you're like, man, Asia sounds a lot better right now. Lydia was great, and that girl's free, but now we're beaten and we're in prison. And I think about that song we say, sang just before I came up of Ever Be. May your praise ever be on my lips. And I started to think, how would I react if I was beaten, if I was thrown in the prison? How would we react? Have you had a situation in your life where you were treated unfairly for trying to do something good? And what I love is here in verse 25, as we read in the beginning, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Their response was to pray and to worship. I would love to know what song they were singing or hymns they were singing, but their response was prayer and worship. 
despite the fact that they are probably bruised and bloody and sore and cold and probably hungry, they chose to respond to God in prayer and worship. And what I love is the other prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas. They were taking notice. Which leads me to my third point, is that our dependence on God can influence those around us. These prisoners are being influenced by Paul and Silas depending on God. They notice it. They see it. They hear it. So now God's going to alter the weather again. And he brings this earthquake. And this is not your typical earthquake. I've been in a couple. I remember as a kid in, in California in 1989, the huge earthquake of San Francisco. Well, we were in Sacramento, and the house started shaking. And in the kitchen, the cabinets all started opening. Dishes were falling out. We ran to the back to see our pool. We had this in-ground. And there were waves. It was incredible. But no doors were popping open, right? God has this earthquake where it opens prison doors. And, these, and the chains were broken, right? That's this is a miracle. God does this. He's changed the weather, the wind to get them there. Now he's doing an earthquake. And the response, as we read earlier, is the jailer, he draws his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. He said, this is it. In this time, if you were a jailer or a soldier and your prisoners escaped, they killed you. You know, this jailer is probably, most historians believe he was a former soldier, so he knew the way of the Roman. He, went, he knew how to run a type ship or a jail, and he knew to take orders. So when he was told to keep them under his watch, he knew that the penalty would be death. In our, in our Bible reading in Acts chapter 12, Peter escapes from prison because God opens it, and the prisoners, Herod has them killed. So this jailer takes his sword. He is ready to end his life. He thinks that this is it. He's weighing his options says, this is the best option. I'm going to end my life. And I think all of us can relate to that. Not that you have a sword and you're ready to kill yourself, but at the end of the day, all of our decisions without Jesus lead to death. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. And I'm not trying to make this a fire and brimstone, but I want to bring in the fact that as a result of our choices, as a result of our sin, sin has consequences just like our choices do. And the consequence for our sin is separation from God. The great thing is, like the jailer, is that we have an option to believe in Jesus. That Jesus has taking our penalty. He's taken our sin on the cross for us so we could be made right with God. And what I love is that the jailer, when Paul yells out, do not harm yourself, for we're all here. The result of Paul and Silas worshiping and praying leads the other prisoners not to run, to say, if these guys can pray and worship and honor God in an awful situation, we should probably stay and figure it out. The result of their dependence on God leads to the jailer who falls and says, what must I do to be saved? The jailer goes from facing death to making a choice to live. If you are here today, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would love to have a conversation with you. So we have others, John Fischer, we have our elders. We would love to just talk with you about the relationship you can have with Jesus. And as... as 
as this jailer realizes that Paul and Silas have something that he doesn't have, and he, he lays out the gospel for him. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your house. And verse 32 says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And then they go on, they can speak to his house. And I know that that story that I've been using of buying a house, that pales in comparison to it. It's buying a house. So I want to add another story. So we ended up buying that house. It all worked out. We actually found out uh, in September in the process that we were pregnant for our first, which was awesome. So then we fast forward the year 2016. I was still refereeing for MLS. And I was working full-time. I would then leave my job, usually Friday afternoons, go catch a flight to somewhere, referee Saturday and fly back Sundays. My wife was basically raising our one by herself, and she was pregnant with our second. And as we were praying about it, I just felt like God was saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? So my dad, I remember my dad at one point said, hey, Dan, should you still be refereeing? Do you need to stop? Now, refereeing at the time was like fifteen dollars to $20,000 of extra income on top of my salary. So that was money we depended on. And I remember one day I went for a run. I was praying during my run, and I came back, and Becky and Josiah were so excited to see me. I was like, oh, man, maybe this is really what... And God kept telling, do you trust me? So I remember saying, all right, that's it. The end of 2016, I said, I'm, I'm done. I'm, re I'm retiring. And I got a call on December 6th from MLS asking me to come back. And I, I saw the voice, I saw it coming, and I let it go to the voicemail because I was holding our second son. I was holding Abraham. And it was this point where I was like, man, God, what seemed good, there was this extra income and an opportunity to referee and, and, and do something I loved. While it seemed good, God had something much better. My marriage became better. And as I was reflecting on this, is in, this is the time where I was able, because I was no longer traveling, I able, was able to fully commit to the youth. So I got to help lead the high school boys. My wife was leading the girls, and I got to serve alongside my wife. Because I was faithful to God when he said, trust me, depend on me. I got to share people like I talked to coworkers. That doesn't make sense. You're giving up fifteen dollars to $20,000 of income. It doesn't make sense. But there was this level of dependence in God, and they got to see that. So what I love about the rest of this passage, as you look at it, as we said, so they lay out the gospel. In verse 33, and the jailer takes them the same hour of the night. He washes their wounds. And he was baptized, but not just he, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up to his house, and he set food before them. And they rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The jailer, who's basically taking out the sword, ready to end his life, makes the decision because he saw what Paul and Silas were doing. How, despite the fact that they're cold and beaten and thrown in prison, they are worshiping and praying to God. Their dependence on God changed the life of this jailer and his family. So as I, I, I love Acts 16. It's one of my favorite passages from Acts. And I love it because this is the first church of Philippians. Paul later writes some letters to Philippians. A lot of the, the scholars believe that Lydia was a, uh, a key person in it. Most likely the, the girl that was the slave girl became, take, was taken in by Lydia. And then this jailer and his family helped. They all helped form the church of Philippians. So I want to read a couple of passages from Philippians. The first one is Philippians 1, verses 3 through 6. And this is Paul writing his letter to these people. This is, he is now in prison himself yet again in Rome, and he's writing this letter, and he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion of the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will see it through. That should be encouraging to us, that God desires to work in us and through us, and that he will see it through the end. He will finish that good work. That's not an easy process. It's not a fast process. That is a long process. That's a process of God daily reminding us to depend on him. So I want to ask you this. What are the decisions in your life that you are facing? What are the choices that you are, you're weighing, or maybe you feel like God is not opening that door for you? Like I said earlier, it could be a spouse or a kid or a promotion, a job, a place to live. What are those choices? Don't do it alone. Paul, build, plants churches to, for the community. Get connected. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you, that would teach you to pray. We have people in home groups that would love to connect with you. There's opportunities to serve. Get connected. Become known. People, we want you to be connected and not, do, not go through this alone. I want to read another passage from Philippians. Uh, chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 2. It says this, complete my joy. So again, Paul is writing this to this church. Again, so think about Lydia, think about a jailer, and think about this, this girl. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit which again, are the choices we make, are we done in selfish ambition or conceit? It says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And hear this, here's Jesus. He says, but he, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus chose to take on the form of a servant. Will we take on the form of a servant? If we live for Christ, if we demonstrate the love of Christ, people are going to notice that. It will lead us to have opportunities of conversations with family, with neighbors, with coworkers with the choices that you make, the decisions you make. And sometimes we don't always know the, the impact of the choices, the decisions that we make. I want to I end of this story real quick. This is from World War II, and it's one I haven't shared before. So there's a pilot, um, well, he's a navigator, and he was part of this World War II um, bombing group, and his name was Elmer Bedener. And he was, part of the, he was on a B-17, and he tells the story of a bombing run over Castle, Germany and really the unexpected result of a direct hit on their gas tanks. It goes on like this. Our B-17 was barraged by a flack of Nazi anti-aircraft guns. That was typical, but on this particular occasion, our gas tanks were hit. Later, as I reflected on the miracle of a 20-millimeter shell piercing the fuel tank without touching off an explosion, our pilot, Bon Fox, told me that, was more, that it was more complicated. On the morning following the raid, Bon asked our crew chief for that shell as a souvenir of our unbelievable luck. The crew chief told Bon that in addition to that shell, another 11 were found in the gas tanks. 
11 unexploded shells were, where only one was significant to blast us out of the sky. It was that the sea had parted for us. Even after these 35 years, that awesome event leaves me shaken, especially after I heard the rest of the story from Bond. Bond told us the shells were sent to the armors to be diffused. The armors told him that the intelligence had then picked them up. They couldn't say why at the time. But Bond eventually sought out the answer. Apparently, when the armors opened each of these shells, there was no explosive charge in them. They were clean as a whistle, just as harmless. Empty. All but one. One contained a carefully rolled up piece of paper with the scrolled message in Czech. The intelligence people scoured the base for a man who could read Czech. Eventually, they read one of the cipher the note, and it was amazing. So this note was written by somebody in the Czech in a Jewish concentration and slave labor camp. And this is what it said. This is all we can do for now. These Czech prisoners made a choice and didn't, most likely didn't get to know the impact that, that their decision had on the lives of others. We all have decisions that we're going to make today. So my prayer is that we live a life of dependence on Jesus that has a positive impact on the lives of the people around us. I'm going to ask the, the, the band to come back up. And as they come back up, what we're going to do today is we're going to take communion and we'll be up front and we'll you'll basically come form the line and, and take some... We're doing communion as a form of worship, as a reflection of who Christ is and what he's done for us. So as you think about the decisions that you have in your life, I ask you to trust God in those decisions and to show that level of dependence to those around you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much that you allow us to make decisions. And God, I thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves because that would be hell. But that you, God, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross, to, to renew our relationship, to give us life, to make us whole with you. Jesus, I pray as we go through this week, as we go through the decisions in life, that we would seek you. We would seek to honor you and glorify you with the choices. That we would trust you, and that we would view ourselves as servants of you, God.